Hi, and welcome to The Return, Property and Investment Podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to share some insights on property investing for entrepreneurs today. This actually came from an event that I hosted earlier this year, so the format is a little bit different to usual. If you'd like to watch the replay, including the slides, that will be linked in the show notes. So now, I'll hand over to me. Enjoy. Um, Well, it's really lovely to see everyone today. I hope everyone is excited generally as excited as I am about COVID restrictions being lifted soon. Um, I've got a bit of a whistle-stop tour of property investing for entrepreneurs for you today. So I will get started quite promptly. Um, Firstly, thank you everyone for joining me today. I'm going to share what property strategies work best for entrepreneurs in the 2020s, when is the best time to think about investing as a business owner, and how business owners can overcome the barriers to growing their portfolios and balance immediate business priorities with long-term wealth preservation. So we should have time for some questions and answers later. And if it's okay with you, I'll take a minute just towards the end to tell you a bit about what we do at SPI Capital. Uh, Before I go into the contents, for those of you who don't know me, and there are quite a few people here who I don't know, it's lovely to meet you, um, but I should introduce myself. I'm Anna. I'm CEO of SBI Capital, which is an algorithm-driven property asset manager with a social conscience. So we create key worker-focused housing portfolios that enable high net worth clients, often entrepreneurs, to preserve and grow their wealth confidently and easily whilst having a positive social impact. And just in terms of background, much of my career has been focused on enabling high net worths to easily diversify into residential property, typically focused on smaller buildings and portfolios in the private rental sector, which each were up to 5 million. And this is really SBI Capital's sweet spot. So before this, I developed a strategy and built the seed portfolio for a high net worth backed fund that was targeting a £100 million housing portfolio and was involved with about £2 billion of transactions as a strategy consultant at Deloitte. And before all that, I studied real estate at Cambridge, which is kind of what got me into the real estate sector in the first place. And along the way, um, as some of you will know, I host a property podcast and published a book called Strategic Property Investing, which became a bestseller in the very first lockdown, which seems a long time ago now, about how private investors can navigate the current and increasingly regulated market. And throughout all this, through my work and and research and writing, it became really clear to me that many investors, in particular individuals who own their own businesses, are struggling in the current property market. They're struggling to get the right strategy, to acquire high quality assets, and to run their portfolios in a way that is profitable and compliant. And these are the kind of problems that we solve through SPI Capital. And they're the kind of problems that prompted us to host this event, to give you the information that you need to help you invest successfully over the coming years. So we've kept this event deliberately short because, to be honest, we know how busy you all are. And I guess the last thing I need to point out is that the ideas I share today are my own and should not be taken as investment advice. So the first thing to do is to set the context. In many ways, there's never been a better time for entrepreneurs to invest in UK residential property, provided it's done in the right ways. Many of the entrepreneurs that we're working with tell us they want the same things. So they want to grow their wealth and make profits. They want to protect the downside and create passive income, especially if they faced losing money in the past. They want to have an impact on the world around them, and they want to be in control. On growing your wealth, In your business, the truth is that you might be able to make hundreds or even thousands of percent return on capital invested. But even the most ambitious property investments or their riskier sisters, property developments, probably won't be able to compete with the potential returns that you have available to you as a successful business owner. 
That said, property is a great way to grow wealth over time without taking on huge risks or the kind of effort that you need to run any other kind of business through rental income and through capital growth. And this is definitely a good thing because entrepreneurs in particular really hate the idea of standing still and not making progress. For many entrepreneurs, property really comes into its own as a way to protect your financial position. It's time-tested as a way to preserve wealth, which you can then use to balance out risks taken elsewhere and give yourself that freedom to continue taking risks with high potential returns in your business without losing sleep over going broke. And ultimately, if it all goes wrong, it's much better if you diversified along the way into something that's stable and safe with low volatility and passive income. So you have something to fall back on. And your property portfolio can be a great way to also stay in control, but have a tangible impact with relatively low hassle. This is something a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've worked with really value. And just the ability, that ability to protect and grow your wealth and be in control and have an impact. These are the reasons why the Sunday Times Rich List is kind of dominated by people who've made their money in their industry and then chosen to invest it in property. And it's why Knight Frank Research highlights that the single largest asset class that ultra high net worths invest in is property at 27% of the holdings, which is pretty extraordinary if you think about it. So in principle, it's, it's a really great fit. But common problems prevent entrepreneurs from investing in property in the current market. So the first of these is that they often don't know where or how or when to invest, or to put it another way, they don't know what strategy will suit their personal situation and also the market. Secondly, they often don't have the time or the knowledge or the inclination to do the work of acquiring the right properties. And thirdly, they don't have the capacity to manage their portfolio in a way that is both profitable and compliant. And whilst they don't really like to give up control in the way that many passive investments require, they do have immediate business priorities that take up most of their time and their energy. So firstly, on strategy, where, how and when to invest depends very much on your goals and also on the current market. You need to therefore understand what the key market trends are. So I'm going to share just a couple of these that I think are the most important. The first of these is global uncertainty and residential stability. So in terms of market context, we're in this undeniably uncertain and fast-changing environment. No country or asset type has been immune to the changes that 2020 has imposed. Geographically, the UK remains relatively stable. For example, relative to Asian markets such as Hong Kong, or the UAE, or even European economies such as Spain and Portugal. Meanwhile, the business environment is volatile. For example, in 2020, the FTSE 100, which is seen by many as one of the more stable stock market options, dropped by 35% in less than a month, followed by 35% growth in three months. And it's even harder for many smaller businesses. For example, you may well have experienced fluctuating cash flows and costs in your own businesses. And with so much uncertainty elsewhere in the world and in other asset types, including your own business investments, the low volatility and kind of almost bond-like status that residential property has, combined with solid performance due to constrained supply and growing demand for housing, it seems increasingly attractive. But you need to focus on the right asset types and geographies. And this kind of leads me nicely onto the next key strategic trend. So we've got growing values. And growth in the property market is a big driver for many entrepreneurial investors who, as I mentioned before, they want to make money. Um, and overall supply is limited by our planning system, by limited land available, and by construction time lags and costs. At the same time, demand is growing. We've got rising living standards over the long term, a relatively robust economy, 
And then really important demographic and social changes like an aging population with people living alone for longer and the millennials settling down later or not settling down at all. And as a result of all this, values are expected to continue to grow over time, which is what they've done historically. So since Nationwide began to track house price records in 1952, UK house prices have doubled on average every nine years. And this growth has been pretty consistent and pretty stable. As for what happens next, Savills forecasts 20.4% UK house price growth over the period of 2020 to 2024. And we, we agree to an extent, we expect house price growth to continue through the 2020s. For the same reasons outlined, it's constrained supply and growing demand. But we do think that growth is likely to slow from its current pace, which reached a bit of a peak at the end of last year at 8.5% annual growth in December. This was very much encouraged by the temporary stamp duty land tax reduction. So most of the investors that we work with, they want to grow their wealth. And as a result, the current trends affecting property prices mean residential property as a whole makes a lot of sense. But as I said, the types of deals and the types of locations that work have changed. The housing market isn't one market. So growth drivers can be used to make better decisions about where to invest. The differences in performance between areas are based on fundamentals, which is the forces that affect demand and supply. For example, Savills forecast that the Northwest will grow by 27.3% in the four years from 2020, compared with 12.7% for London. Ultimately, house price growth comes down to where do people want to live, where are their jobs, and what can they afford. So if you want to make a long-term return in UK residential property, you really need to be looking for areas that offer value. And I really like to think of it as being as much as possible like Warren Buffett's idea of value investing. It basically makes sense to look at where the fundamentals of demand and supply are really good and focus on those undersupplied markets with stable or growing demand, and then just buy at the right price and hold. The truth is, the best investment areas for returns might not be the sexiest areas, and they might not be the areas that you're familiar with. So most busy business owners we work with who have invested independently for themselves will focus within 10 miles of their own home or in major cities like central London or central Manchester. And that's kind of because it feels safe. The reality is though, if you don't have time or skills or knowledge to professionally handle issues as they arise, this can be a bit of false comfort. Familiarity kind of reduces the perceived risk, but it doesn't actually reduce the risk involved. Also, it's likely that you won't be able to optimize your returns if you invest close to home or in the center of the UK's major cities, in particular now in light of new working from home trends. And another thing that really attracts investors is the idea of hotspots. But there's a bit of a word of warning on these. When an area is described as a hotspot, for example, it appears in one of the Telegraph's articles on you know, the top vital hotspots to invest in, that's often when it's basically too late. As for strategy, so we've spoken to and worked with many investors who've been burned by schemes such as glitzy, glamorous new build properties, often marketed with so-called discounts, off-plan opportunities, or exciting developments, private equity-backed projects, or crowdfunded deals, which are really attractive to entrepreneurs who like the idea of profit and of having an impact. But the truth is, these can be far more risky than the sales pitches would suggest. And the potential increase in returns from more unproven opportunities may not be worth the additional risk. 
For example, glitzy new build projects with their NHPC warranties are marketed using these stunning computer-generated images. And it's done to make investors feel safe. However, build quality can be quite inconsistent and the structural warranty doesn't actually cover very much. And I think the recent cladding issue that's been all over the newspapers highlights how even high profile developments from trusted developers can actually be quite risky. Often new build prices are, it's a bit of an industry secret, but they're basically made up. So whether you're thinking of funding a development or buying a new build, don't just accept what you're told. If you're buying the end product, be aware that often fake discounts and guaranteed rents are often used as a marketing strategy. You might be told that you can buy off plan and then flip a property when it's built because the market is growing. But the real truth is, ultimately, to benefit from house price growth, time in the market is much better than trying to time the market. Don't over-rely on capital growth because it is ultimately beyond your control. And this is especially true now because a lot of potential buyers are being priced out by affordability constraints or they're concerned by uncertainties in their employment position. The unfortunate truth is that a lot of investors have ended up losing millions of pounds to half-built schemes where the developer sadly went bust. The truth is developers usually can't control either sales cycles or the costs that define profits. So with off-plan, private equity and crowdfunded developments, you are taking on development risk and you're at the whim of the construction company or developer, rising build costs and slower sales cycles. Many entrepreneurs do love this idea of development, but the reality is not very many wealthy people actually made their money in this way. They make their money typically in their business and then put it in long-term, what we would call steady eddies to protect it. Development is basically a new business and it's one that if you're running another probably very time-intensive business, you're probably not going to be able to be the best at both. So if you are seeing property as a way to balance out business risks, then basically I would encourage you to avoid anything, whether it's areas or buildings or projects, which has unproven demand. So that includes those development projects as well as new build schemes and off-plan. It's much safer to invest in already built assets with, without that development risk and a bit of a track record in terms of rental income. And this is something that we specialize in at SBI Capital. So for many entrepreneurs, a big incentive to invest in residential property comes from the passive income that can be created. And this is driven by the strength of the rental market in what's known as the private rental sector or PRS. This is currently worth 1.5 trillion in the UK, 1.5 trillion pounds, just to be clear. The private rental sector, in, like, in its most basic terms, is basically residential property owned by a landlord and rented to a tenant. And it amounts to over 20% of UK households. Trends in the rental market can be used to guide the right asset decisions. So overall, demand is increasing for the same reasons driving house price growth. In addition, we've got generation rents, affordability constraints, and desire for flexibility, and current uncertainties, which reduce demand from potential homeowners. And this is kind of good news for long-term residential investors because it means demand for rental housing increases and therefore rents increase. But in fact, providing rental housing that people can afford is a bit like providing a utility. It's counter-cyclical because we all need a roof over our heads regardless of the jobs market. For example, rents in the UK continue to grow, albeit much more slowly, through Brexit and COVID. Demand growth and limited supply mean rents are expected to continue to increase. Savills suggest this will be 3% annually over the next three years. As for value, the same trends will not apply consistently 
across all parts of the UK. So one thing that's really notable in 2020 is people cared a lot less about living in cities like London. We had this two-track rental market emerge and it's become quite entrenched with non-London UK rents increasing by 2.3% over the course of the year versus a fall of 8.3% in London, according to Zoopla. For business owners, owning rental properties is increasingly attractive, in particular in the context of either low yields or very volatile cash flows and values elsewhere. But as I mentioned, it's not just about investing close to home or in well-known city centres. And one approach that's proved really popular with entrepreneurs is to buy a house that you could live in if it all went wrong and rent out in the meantime, or a house that you could also use as a holiday home. And if you're trying to maximise returns and keep risks to a minimum, this sometimes is not the best strategy to use and the best use of your funds, because firstly, you could invest, end up quite over-invested in that single asset. And secondly, if you're looking for a property to use and live in or have your children or future children live in and to make money from it in the meantime, you'll likely end up making sacrifices to both goals because it's actually very difficult to meet all of these needs at once. So you can reduce risk to your cash flow in this uncertain environment by creating a portfolio diversified across different geographies with a greater number and diversity of tenants. And that means that let's say you face an issue with one single tenant, the rest of your cash flow is unaffected. So this diversity really helps to minimize your portfolio risks. You can also focus on built assets with a track record of rental income, like I mentioned earlier. And another good thing to do is to focus on relatively affordable mainstream rather than prime or premium housing. So for example, we tend to focus on properties which are already let at rents that are below 35% of median area incomes. And this is considered affordable to local people. So that means if your tenant moves on, you'll be able to quite quickly and easily replace them. And you don't need the kind of guaranteed rents that I mentioned earlier. You can also choose to focus on strategically selected, selected stable and growth sectors to guide your asset location and location decisions. For example, you've got demand increasing quite significantly due to biomedical in Oxford, technology in Cambridge, distribution in Northampton, and then you've got hospitals in cities across the country where you've got huge demand from nurses and doctors, which is very strong relative to available, suitable, quality, affordable supply. So as for how your personal situation affects your investment strategy, the next market trend really directly affects how you can and should invest. Due to more regulations, many sideline landlords are now struggling to operate compliantly and profitably. The growing regulatory burden and taxation changes that have come in quite steadily since 2015 favour a more professional rental market. And they encourage investors to basically view their portfolio as an investment business rather than a sideline hobby. For example, you've got new health and safety regulations, licensing, minimum EPC requirements, and then the infamous Section 24, which basically negatively affects income taxation for individuals owning leveraged properties. And for many investors, it's increasingly inefficient to own a small portfolio of less than five units. So if this applies to you, it's a good idea to start thinking about whether you want to rationalize and sell or to grow strategically in the same way that you would your business. Make sure you're clued up on and aligned with regulations and speak to your tax advisor before making your next investment if you're not sure because the optimal structure for investments has changed. If you're a passive investor and you want to own the bricks and mortar for yourself so that you're in control, more than ever really, you need a trusted team on the ground to support you. 
however you decide to invest, you just need to ensure that what you do is both profitable and compliant. If you don't care too much about owning the asset directly, then there's a wider range of options available to you that can help you to invest professionally. But there's advantages and disadvantages to each of them. So we conducted a research piece into what the investors that we work with really care about and scored the most common options available to entrepreneurs against these priorities. So if what you're looking for is to own and control real assets, then the best option is to invest directly. And you can either do this independently, for example, working with sources and managing agents on the ground, or you can work with a business like SPI Capital. If you're looking to maximize your returns, then direct investments are generally better. By contrast, if you look at real estate investment trusts or through private equity, there's typically a higher cost base associated with acquiring and managing assets, which means you generally end up getting a lower return. In terms of preserving wealth, it's often best to own the assets directly. By comparison, listed real estate options are a bit more volatile and private equity and crowdfunded deals are often riskier generally, which makes for less stable returns. For those of you who do want to have a social impact, it's best to do this through a direct investment as the alternatives either don't focus on delivering an impact or where they do, it's often a bit tenuous. And if what you want is liquidity, the best option by far is listed real estate, but you do end up sacrificing control, returns, and you'll have to invest your money alongside others, which means many business owners prefer to avoid. As for when to invest... From a market perspective, there is huge and growing appetite for residential property investments from major global pension funds and other institutions. And with this huge amount of capital coming in in the 2020s, getting in sooner rather than later makes sense from a market timing perspective. But don't try to compete with institutions. Find your niche. And for example, for us, it's key worker housing worth between 500k and 5 million. On a personal level, one of the top regrets that we speak to investors about and that they tell us about is not having got started sooner. So whether you're in the growth stage or post-exit, the uncertainties we've seen in 2020 really highlight the importance of having something stable to fall back on. Whether you choose gold or bonds or property, that's up to you. As the wise old saying goes, the best time to invest was yesterday and the next best time is today. So if you want to grow your portfolio over the coming years as a way to balance out the risks in your business, UK residential property makes a lot of sense. But remember that not all property opportunities are created equal and many of the old ways are broken. So you need to think really strategically about key trends in the market, such as global uncertainty, growing values, growing rents and increasing regulations. These will affect where you invest and how you invest. And you also need to consider your personal requirements, which will affect when you invest and how you can operate in a way that is profitable and also compliant. As for how business owners can balance the immediate business priorities that they already have with long-term wealth preservation, more than ever, we think you need the right teams on the ground to support you. And at this point, leads me nicely into uh, taking a minute to just share a bit about SPI Capital, if that's okay. So the three co-founders are myself, Ruth McCarthy, who's a former head of real estate at a top 100 national law firm, and Damien Fogg, who is a building surveyor, investor, and former financial advisor with over 2 billion of residential transactions under his belt. And we're supported by advisors such as Heath Thomas, who is head of real estate finance for NowWest and RBS in the north and northwest of England. And SPI Capital was created when three of us, real estate professionals with 50 years experience across property law, surveying, finance and investment strategy, saw a gap in the market. 
we were all working at the time with high net worth individuals and we realized these clients were basically all facing the same problems. They wanted to own tangible, stable bricks and mortar assets that would give them a good return throughout market changes, but they didn't want to do it passively through buying the kind of low performing REITs or property funds that we mentioned earlier. They did want ownership and control, but they didn't want the hard work and hassle of being a landlord. But the problem was there really just wasn't a suitable provider to solve this problem. So we set about designing a solution that focused on what our high net worth clients wanted and enabling them to meet their specific goals so that they could invest confidently and easily, but without losing control. And we believe there's never been a better time to invest in UK residential property, provided it's done in the right ways with risks minimized and returns maximized. It will no doubt be clear from the presentation that the fundamentals of residential property remain very strong, but it's no longer as easy as it was before. So our mission is to transform how high net worth individuals invest in residential property. So we empower investors to preserve and grow their wealth with confidence and ease whilst having a positive social impact. And if you're interested in working with us to create your portfolio, there's a couple of ways that we can take this forward. So if what you want at this stage is just information, then the book I published last year contains a lot of the recent changes and the impacts for you as an investor. So if you'd like a copy, just drop us an email with the best address and we can get that sent out to you. If you just want to stay up to date with what's happening in the market, um, I've got a podcast, which is a good place to start. So that's linked on the slide. And if you'd like to explore working together or to find out more about what we do and see if it's a good fit, then just email info at spi.capital to book a confidential no obligation conversation or uh, or wait for our email. We'll do a follow-up email after this event. And the same goes, if you'd like to stay in touch and just attend future events, you can also email us or just wait for our follow-up email. Hi, I'm Anna and I'm delighted to be joined by Angelica Donati for this episode of the Return Property and Investment Podcast. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Anna. I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about prop tech, which is a theme that Angelica is super hot on. She's a bit of a thought leader and as well as degrees from Oxford and LSE and a background at Goldman Sachs and a role as a CEO of a multinational development company, she regularly contributes to conferences for um, and so on about the topic of prop tech change and innovation in the real estate sector. So big advocate of change and disruption. Well, thanks for the amazing introduction. <laughs> and thank you for flattering. joining me. Thank you for joining My pleasure. me. pleasure. So firstly, when we first got talking, we were talking about why technology mm -hmm. change is so important in the real estate sector, which has historically been kind of a little bit old fashioned or known for being a little bit old fashioned. Why do you think that innovation and change is so important in the property sector right now? I think it's it's the right time. It's a train that might run away from us if we don't jump on it at this moment. So property is a very sticky, idiosyncratic sector. It's not like the finance industry, and I'm just drawing that parallel because I, I used to work there. Um, you know, fintech took off with a bang and took off very quickly because we're talking about a purely intangible asset. Property is very much a tangible asset and it's very people heavy. So there's always been a lot of reluctance to change and innovate, especially because a lot of money used to be made without much innovation at all. Traditional methods always worked. And I think for the first time now, the cycle is broken and traditional methods are starting to fall short. And so there is a perfect opportunity to bridge the gap and introduce tech. The problem I'm seeing, although less so more recently, is that there are a lot of companies out there who just don't want to see it. And they, the, the philosophy is, it's always worked this way before. Why should we change something that's not broken? But things are broken now. So it's an opportunity, but it's also a challenge to embrace change at the right time and in the right way. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, it's very interesting that you bring it straight to that element of resistance. That's certainly something that I see in the investment space where, for example, people sort of still believe the same things will always work, like the mantra of capital growth, mm -hmm. values will always go up mm -hmm. regardless of looking at the fundamentals. In the yeah. same way, people believe that, well, actually, it'll be interesting to find out what from the construction side, for example, or from other parts beyond investment, mm -hmm. what the resistance is, where that's coming from. Sure. So I think, I mean, the easiest one to talk about is, as you say, investment, simply because the real estate model is built on assets. And actually, right now, what's changing is that it's starting to transition into a people-centric business in the sense that it's not about getting the building in the right place. It's about delivering the right space for the occupiers, because you can have a fantastic location but it could be empty if you're not providing the right service. On the construction side, it's even thornier because there's a whole regulatory side of matters that it's not very easy to tackle, especially because you're building something that needs to last, or rather stand the test of time. And so the risk aversion is very high there. But I think on the construction side of things, especially, there is still a conflictual relationship between the people who execute and the people who commission work. And so there is no flexibility to kind of experiment with stuff because as a contractor, and I, and I talk from the contractor's point of view, because that's what one of the things my company does, you cannot afford both in terms of margins and in terms of contractual agreements to deviate from, from what you've agreed on. So that it, it stifles innovation. The way that can be fixed is if the end clients, whether they're private sector clients or public sector clients, bake innovation into their plans initially. And then that's part of the mandate for execution. So why would they do that then? And again, when we talked in the past, we talked about sort of using innovation, using change as mm -hmm. a way to solve very real problems of which yeah. there are many in the property sector, but actually that doesn't always happen. So why would they want to innovate? So, I mean, quite bluntly, there's only two reasons why you would ever want to make any kind of change as a business. You would do it if it helped your top or your bottom line. Ultimately, you either make more revenues or spend less money. Yeah. And these boil down to just you know more profits, hopefully for your business in the long term. So that's the only condition for change, which is why when you're talking about the problem solving side of things, it's very important that you're looking at real solutions to problems and not solutions looking for a problem because otherwise it's just window dressing, which also sometimes plays a role. Like sometimes the whole marketing angle is important, but ultimately in the long term, you need to bring a strong value add to the business mm -hmm. that you're working with in order for any kind of change, whether it be tech and innovation or you know social change, you name it, it, need, it needs to bring something to them. Then in that case, what are some examples where, and good examples where they've solved very real problems through innovation that you've seen? My God, there's so many. Um, it depends on the most exciting. <laughs> oh goodness, uh, how long do we have? Um, no. So, for example, I think to me, going back to what we're talking about in terms of asset management and their whole service side of yeah. real estate, there's so many clever solutions out there that are individually and collectively tackling the problem of how do we get the occupiers of our buildings to have the best experience possible. And so, for example, in, in office spaces, it's about, well, not just about how you efficiently use the space, not just about how you make sure they've got the best air quality, but also about how, I don't know, how they can park their cars and, you know, book their meeting rooms and, you know, how best to allocate their desks so that they're more efficiently used, all the services that tenants can, or not even tenants, that, that workers can have through 
tenant apps, the, the access mm -hmm. controls. It's a package solution that right now is not being delivered by a single startup, but by all these startups working together. Then you see these office portfolios kind of getting a new lease on life. And, you know, there will always be a space for people to go to work. I don't really believe in this whole, you know, we will all work from home mantra. So it's very important. And, and the same in other spaces like retail and residential and residential. It's a bit trickier because obviously you don't want that much external presence in your home. Although there's a lot that can be done anyways to, to bring service inefficiencies. But retail, for example, is a sector that many consider to be dying out. So it's literally about saving a sector and breathing new life into it and, and turning it into a hybrid between online and offline. And you can't do that without tech and innovation. It's definitely exciting. And I would say that there is quite a lot going on in, in residential on that side. It's just much smaller in terms of the impact, whether it's kind of around like, heating controls mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, or yeah. keeping an eye on things, keeping stuff secure. You're absolutely right. And it's just a more cautious approach. So in an office space, you can go everywhere because there aren't any privacy concerns. People are at work, they're paid to be there. Yeah. At home, you can't start putting cameras in people's flats. I mean, they yeah. won't go for that. But as you say, heating controls or leak detection systems yeah. or, you know, just energy efficiency monitors. And then in a rental portfolio, you can also have a system that switches on and off depending on whether the units are occupied. So you can have all that monitoring when the units are empty and then you can switch it off or scale it back when, when they're occupied. I think that's where it will really start to have an effect in the residential sector, which, as you know, mm. is my focus is as the key players in the industry grow and scale, then things will be more yeah. automatically uh, implemented throughout. Absolutely. And I think the granularity of the residential sector is also another break on innovation, just because it's so much easier to gain scale and gain critical mass when you're dealing with five big office portfolios as opposed to 50 residential landlords. Yeah very different type of client what about then some examples where tech and innovation we talked about some good examples where it solved real problems what about where technology has basically just been used as either a sticking plaster or a shiny object and change and disruption are not limited to technology in the real estate sector what other types of change and or innovation do you see happening and being important in property so, I mean, tech is just an enabler, right? It's not, it's the tool. It's not the be all and end all. Um, I think you need to innovate your process using all the tools at hand. So your product is the asset mm -hmm. and your process is the way you manage it or in construction, the way you deliver it. Now tech helps, yeah. but that's actually not your end goal. Your end goal is to deliver a better result to your investors and to your end users. So a lot of it is also just cultural change and just KPI change as well. So if your bottom line concerns... Just explain what you mean for... Yeah, sorry. Uh, so a key performance indicators. So let's say that what I find, my KPI could be I want to maximize my rent roll. Yeah. Right. But then that's not enough. So then you go into that and you think, okay, well, how can I maximize my rent roll? Do I stuff as many people into the space as I can? Or do I try and make sure that there's no vacancies in the space? Or do I try and take top dollar for every square foot? And depending on which KPIs you make more important in your strategy, then you roll out a different tactic. So then there's tech that can support all three. But the main thing here is figuring out what your ethos is and what your goals are. And that's the first step. And then the tech is just a tool mm. you layer on afterwards. Okay, very interesting. And if there's one innovation that you're most excited about right now in property, what would that be? So I would say just 
because of what I do on a daily basis, I'm very excited about the whole construction side of things, just because if kind of property management is thorny, construction is even thornier. But there are so many potential gains to be had simply because it's such an inefficient sector. Margins are so low nowadays and like the only way is up. So there, there's so much interesting stuff going into that space mm. from the kind of the more basic workflow management type startups that basically help as we're discussing process to the kind of blue sky robotics, offsite manufacturing, you know, 3D printing, yeah. you name it, that, you know, in future, maybe we can extrude a whole building. Who knows? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. That would be very interesting. Yeah. Amazing. Like in the Jetsons, I always remember the, I don't know if you used to watch the Jetsons when you were a kid. It's like this like cartoon from the 80s, I think, and they live <laughs> in the future and they're like, the buildings just get like spat out of a spaceship. It's, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Working towards it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Amazing. So if anyone wants to uh, find out more about what you do or follow what you're up to, mm -hmm. what's the best way for them to do that? So plenty of channels. So I'm quite present on social media. So I, um, well, obviously my Forbes column, which you can find on Forbes just by uh, looking up Angelica Crystal Donati or, or Angelica Donati, and you can follow that and read all my articles. I publish about one a week. And then I have LinkedIn, I have Twitter, I have Instagram, I have Facebook, I have everything. And I also have a website, AngelicaDonati.com, where I try to collect all the various things that I'm doing. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and insights and for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And if you want to find more about the podcast or hear other episodes, uh, the best place to go is AnnaClaireHarper.com with no I slash podcast and AnnaClaireHarper on Instagram and LinkedIn and also AngloResidential.com. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.